Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Francesco Dalco, professor of the history of architecture at the Istituto Universitario di Architectura Venezia and director of the architecture magazine Casabella. Professor Dalco's new book is Centre Pompidou, Renzo Piano, Richard Rogers, and the Making of a Modern Monument. The book explores the building's history, from its genesis as a politically calculated response to Paris's turbulent 1968 student protests, to the role played by architects in its construction, as well as the historical influences and engineering solutions that made its construction possible. Francesco, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back to Yale. (laughs) You write in the book's preface about the problems that a scholar faces when writing about contemporary history, that is, history that he himself has lived through. Can you tell us how your own experience has shaped your perspective on the Centre Pompidou and how its meaning has evolved for you over the years? Well, uh, there are three reasons why I was uh, so interested by the Centre Pompidou. It's only because I I know Renzo Piano since uh, 1968, uh, which means before the beginning of the entire process of creating, uh, first of all, the structure which organized the competition in, 60, in 1969, and afterwards during the entire process of designing it and the construction. The reasons of my interest are related to the fact that always uh, both Piano and Rogers presented uh, their work as a kind of result of the relationship that usually, uh, or in the ancient time, the jester has had with the the jesters had with uh, uh, the representative of power. Kings, uh, great cardinals, uh, emperors, and so on. The jester can say something which is not usually said to the power. And they presented themselves as the jester which uh, took fun of the power attitude. But instead, the entire history of uh, the building was shaped by the fact that uh, very paradoxically the power was speaking the same language of the jester but they didn't understand and this is amazing because really they said the same thing if uh, you read for instance uh, the notes for the competition the draft for the competition you can perceive that uh, the power assumed the same language which was spoken during 1968 in the universities, in the streets, in the theaters, uh, in Paris during this uh, uh, upheaval, let's say, which took place there during May, the May, uh, the month of May 1968, and afterwards. So. The power understood that, uh, and speaking of the power, we have to speak of a person, Georges Pompidou, who was the prime minister during the Gaulle, uh, when the Charles de Gaulle 
General de Gaulle, who was president of the Republic, was the prime minister. And afterwards, after the retirement of de Gaulle, he became the president of the Republic. And he ran it by himself, the entire process, using, uh, using this attitude, which is expressed by a slogan, Pas de Chenli, Reforme, oui, which means that pas de confusion, pas, uh, not confusion in the street, not confusion in the society. But Chenli has very peculiar meaning. It implies the presence, the role, uh, is uh, the word used to qualify uh, a mask in the ancient uh, Parisian carnival. No carnival, but reform we. And this is what Pompidou did. Thinking that uh, to create this very strange building, because usually we think that Centre Pompidou is a museum. Centre Pompidou was much more complicated thing. There was library, there was laboratories of research, uh, a section devoted to applied arts, and uh, also a museum. Now the role of the museum is overwhelming, but the library, the laboratories, this place to confront the different experiences in the field of the creativity, not so much of art, of creativity, was his target. And this was linked to his entire policy to recreate a social atmosphere, which was... Uh, the expression of the fact that what happened during May 1968 was over, and on the other side, to restore the role of France, of France as the leading country in Europe in the process of unification and transformation of Europe. To do that, it was extremely important, and it was very clear in the mind of Minister of uh, ministers of de Gaulle like uh, Malraux, but was very clear also in the mind of Georges Pompidou that uh, should be restored the role of Paris to challenge the fact that modernity found uh, during the second part of the past century its homeland in New York to challenge the New York role as the leading town of modernity. And in order to have an idea of what was going through, you have to think what France produced in those years. Those years are the year when they are thinking, for instance, and afterwards produced an airplane which was marvelous, which was the Concorde. And the Concorde was studied, designed and built to reach New York. But America, United States of America, say no, not New York. It was a very strong confrontation. It was a strong confrontation for the policy that France did in the field of the production of energy. The decision they took to focus all their energies in the building of a nuclear plant to free France from the market, the oil market, which was controlled by the United States of America. 
So this is obviously a very primitive frame, but the Centre Pompidou is the byproduct of all this much more complicated, obviously, and requiring a much more deep analysis of the historical situation that pushed Georges Pompidou to take this decision. And this is the first reason of my interest in the building. The second one is represented by the fact that during its entire history, the Centre Pompidou was uh, in a, under, I would say, covered by a huge fog of prejudice, represented by the fact that when the Centre Pompidou the construction of the Centre Pompidou started, in the same time, uh, the town of Paris took the decision to destroy one of the most uh, important and extraordinary buildings built uh, during 19th centuries in Paris, Les Halles Centrales, designed by Baltard, Gallet, and built by Jolie. The central market of Paris disappeared contemporaneously with the Centre Pompidou. And in the mind of people, of the audience, remained also the fact that Centre Pompidou produced the destruction of the Al, of the central market, which is not true. There are two different separate histories. But always there is this complaint about uh, the Centre Pompidou, which is uh, a building which is accused to be at the region, or one of the reasons why one of the most beautiful buildings built during the 19th century was destroyed. But there is also another thing which is very interesting. The Al Centrale, uh, the central market in Paris, was built with a new technique. Walter Benjamin, in his fundamental studies about Paris, capital of 19th century, described exactly this process of construction. The attention to the details, the design of the details, and the fact that new techniques, new materials, implies the use of a construction method which is based on the montage. Montage is a word destined to become part of our language in all the field of artistic experience since that. But this idea that a building can be built starting from the process of its construction, in other terms, that you are designing a process not just a building in terms that we had been trained uh, to think uh, from the ancient time, but as a process. And this is perfectly represented by the Centre Pompidou. The, the building designed by Peter Rice, uh, the, who was a genius, it was a, an engineer who was present in all the moment of the construction, of the design and the construction of the Centre Pompidou is really something which fulfills a process which uh, had uh, its origins in the 19th century and expressed perfectly from this building 
the Al-Central, which disappeared, and this is again a paradox, in the same moment when the contemporary building, which was using its technique, the way in which it was building, was fulfilling it at the maximum level. There is another reason, the third one, that uh, gave to me a real... Uh, the strength, the, 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 the need I perceived, how this process was done, this absolutely modern way of building a building, piece by piece, tiny piece by tiny piece, designing a process. But there is a structure, should be, there is a static idea, and which is this idea? The idea which, uh, from which the building assumed this uh, incredible shape like really a monument of modernity. Uh, at the bottom of everything, uh, there is the fact that the building was conceived as five square overlapping, five square layered, and so they must be free. And so you have to throw away from the square all which is always important in a building, starting from the staircases, starting from uh, all uh, the equipment for conditioning, transferring people and so on, in order to transfer all what is in movement in the building, because also the air in a building moves. <laughs> and uh, so they put outside all that and uh, to fulfill this uh, outside of the big square, of the five-layered square. And in order to do that, uh, they didn't invent something new. They discovered a static principle, a construction principle, which is at the origin of the gerberets, the cantilevered terminal of the beams of of the worm beams of the Centre Pompidou, which sustained the staircases, uh, the tubes, uh, the elevators, and so on and so on. And they called this a solution, and they gave a name to this piece of iron, which was shaped in a factory, which was very similar to a 19th century factory in Germany. This piece they called Gerberette. And uh, very often, and mostly, obviously, when the building appeared, <coughs> people thought that Gerberet was a kind of joke. Uh, Richard uh, Rogers and Renzo Piano and Peter Rice were very young in this time. And, um, and so people thought that uh, they enjoyed the life in Paris, they have their own time, they go outside in the bar to... And they say that the Gerberet came from one of the infinite names that uh, in the novels by Zola, for instance, uh, you can read related to the presence of, of the ladies in the social life in Paris. No, it's not true. Gerberet is just the translation of the name of uh, a very serious, a very serious engineer who was member of the bureaucracy 
in uh, Bavarian state uh, during the 19th century, who built in 1856 a bridge in Esfurt on the, the river there, which was using a saddler. A saddler is a tool to change the nature and the way in which uh, you have to give dimensions to the beams. In order to have big beams and to have them not so high but thin beams, they used the gerberet. And using the gerberet, they reduced the the eye of the beams and had the opportunity to hang to them all the facility. So gerberet is not the expression of a new name for young, beautiful ladies in Paris, but is an homage to a, a very serious engineer, Georg Gerber, who built this building. This is very important to perceive, because very often when we see something which appears very, very new, and this is again another aspect of the fog which I spoke before, when you see something which appears very, very, very new, in reality there is always something which is very, very old. The things, and mostly in architecture, what a, is the appearances, they are not uh, the translation of the real nature of the building. There are several times. And so the Bobourg, who was visited by six million people at the beginning and enjoyed this great success at the most innovative and modern and futuristic building, in reality, at its roots deeply in the land where the foot of Gerber was at the middle of the 19th century. This was another reason for me to, to study and to explain how this structure was conceived. Finally, uh, you know, Paris is a magnificent town and uh, the French culture is part of our of our culture of our shared culture and to see what happened in France among uh, the intellectual in the cultural environment where this uh, uh, an English engineer uh, an English architect, an Italian architect, arrived, produced, was extremely interesting. The reactions that their work produced. And uh, to think a little bit about the nature of these reactions, which are based always on a prejudice, which is not a prejudice which is typical of Paris, which is part of our of our normal life. When uh, the building was, uh, the process of the building was under construction, Renzo Piano and Richard Rogers received a letter, which uh, was called the Protestation des Artistes, 
the protest of the artist against this building. The text of this letter was exactly the same text of a letter which was written by the most famous intellectual in Paris, architects, artists, against the Tour Eiffel. And there, the most important topic, the argument they used, is that the Tour Eiffel violated the intact, this is the exact word, the intact beauty of Paris. Saying that, they cancelled all what's happened in Paris, starting from the middle of 19th century, when Napoleon III and Baron Osman gave to Paris the shape that now we see and now we enjoy. The other thing, how could I go to Paris with my daughter if there is no the Tour Eiffel? When we went there for the first time in our life, obviously we went to see the Tour Eiffel, as we went to see the Louvre, all the other, but can you figure Paris without Tour Eiffel? And now, can you figure Paris without Beaubourg, Centre Pompidou? Finally, Georges Pompidou, the servant to to have his name written on this building. You can be left, right, progressive, or conservative. I'm not interested in that from a political point of view. But Georges Pompidou was uh, a person who was uh, cultivated, extremely cultivated. And so in this time we are living through, there is another reason to have a little bit of nostalgia for this time. Georges Pompidou was a president he wo who was able to answer to the question during, by the journalist during a press of the re the release, answering directly, quoting by memory, Rambo. I don't know if we live in time where, when we have politicians able to answer to the question of journalists quoting Rambo anymore. It seems not at the moment in any case. Um, the, the building, Centre Pompidou, or Bobo, as it's often referred to in Paris, originally was specifically not intended to be considered a monument. And yet the website for the Centre Pompidou refers to itself that way. You refer to it that way in the subtitle of your book. When did that, was that, a, was that an early transition? How did that happen? Well, it was very clear uh, in the notes uh, for the competition that they didn't want to build a monument. As I told you before, they were using the same language uh, that uh, was, uh, had been spoken during the, uh, May 1968. There was nothing far, more far away from this language than the same word monument. And so it's very clear <coughs> they don't want to have a monument. Officially, they don't want to have a monument. 
And obviously Piano and Rogers didn't want to build a monument. But the monuments are not only the product, the byproduct of the will of uh, the president, the emperor, the, uh, the pope, uh, the prince, but or of the architects. Monuments are also monuments because we create monuments. We think, we give the attention to an object, which transforms it in a monument. Gioconda, the Gioconda by Leonardo, was not created to gather thousands and thousands and thousands of people around it coming from all over the world. These people, this audience, transformed the Gioconda. And this is true for everything. It's true for everything. The building was not conceived absolutely not to be a monument, but the use that we did afterwards transformed it in a monument. And this is something which always we have to have in mind because not the use, the relationship that people, time, Time, people, established with a, a building, with an object of art, changes continuously its own nature. It's completely different to build, uh, uh, to design a magnificent portra portrait by Giovanni Bellini for the Doge in Venice or to exhibit it in the most beautiful room, for instance, in the Frick collection. It changes. It changes its meaning. And so we have always to perceive that what we see should be investigated in order to understand what it is now. But if you don't understand what it is now, the thing, it's very difficult to understand what it was its origins. One of the things you write in the book that sort of unites the design, construction, and use and interpretation of the building that I found interesting was this equation between the degree of fun and whimsy that went into the design and even the construction and the physical appearance of the building, that that, would, that, that e equaled a support of um, a sort of more serious matter of the degree of learning that would go on in the space that the building contained, if I understood that correctly, that there was an equation between fun and learning. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, this is uh, the most important consequences, one of the most important consequences, not only of uh, uh, the transformation of the European society in 1968, uh, when really uh, there was a, a strong political engagement, uh, but at the same time, a gigantic and incredible uh, upheaval of uh, irony of, and also of happiness and, uh, to perceive ourselves free from uh, the constrictions of uh, the society before. 
all the, the European society had been changed completely by 1968. To give you an example, in my country there was not the divorce, which could be before. There are the many, many fundamental rights arrived from that. Obviously, many, many problems, but anyway, this was a characteristic for him. But you know, the people, both the piano, uh, no, not both, the three, three of them, Piano, Rice, and, uh, and, Richard, and Richard Rogers, they, had, uh, they lived in London. They, Renzo was commuting between London and Genoa and Italy and so on. And London was a very peculiar town because we have a very strange idea about London. When the war ended, the Second World War ended, the country in Europe, and this is surprising, which suffered more the poetry after the war was England. Uh, England was really starving. And uh, around uh, uh, the 60s, uh, there were some new attitudes coming up from this society which afterwards produced the fact that London became the most alive town in, uh, in the world, in Europe, for several years. I mean, it's stupid to say, but uh, there is a, a song by the Beatles, Let It Be. What does it mean, let it be? And uh, obviously it's not the most serious expression of all that. But to remain in the field of architecture, there was a very good architect, Cedric Price, who designed with uh, uh, an artist, uh, a theatrical lady in London, a project which was called The Fun Place, which was a big theater, but we couldn't even say theater. As we cannot say that at the beginning the Saint Pompidou was a museum, or a monument, at the same time we cannot say that the fun place was a theater. Everything could happen there. And fun place is the mother of Centre Pompidou in the, the mind of the architect who designed the Centre Pompidou. But the meaning of fun place was that the dark years after the war was finished. Fun place implies the fact that there is free time, that to have free time, that you have time to cultivate yourself, to cultivate your culture, your interests. You have free time. England came out from a long period where one population didn't know what is free time. And so there is also the uh, I could I, I don't find the the good uh, the stream yes the the stream of uh, these experiences Archigram, but mostly Cedric Price fun places which arrived to Central Pompidou and this uh, for England was really. A real, a real change. Obviously, in Europe, 
our society were very different. Uh, in England, uh, was not like France, not like Germany, not like Italy, and so on. But this uh, stream, uh, which uh, was the byproduct that finally the starving time of the war was over for the English society, reached also the the river, which uh, produced the, the the building of the Centre Pompidou. And so where has that river gone now? What, do you, what would you say um, is most relevant about the building today? Or what, what do you think contemporary architects or designers have the most to learn from the Centre Pompidou? Well, uh, obviously they are all, uh, in my opinion, uh, they are all what I said. I mean, uh, to have a very... If you analyze uh, from uh, an historical point of view the Centre Pompidou, uh, this is a good lesson to perceive the fact that uh, to think in terms of modernity, to think that the modernity is something which is the byproduct of a single invention is very silly. André Gide said continuously that uh, you have to remember that what appears as the most modern thing, usually in the fastest time, fastest passing of the years, become the most older one. And I think that this is true also for the Pompidou. But there are several le other lessons which could be investigated and learned from this building. For instance, the fact that the, fa the facade Always for the, for architecture, in general, facade is the magnet where the decoration arrive. Decoration, you should you should uh, think of decoration in this term like uh, dust of iron work, which is organized by the magnetic force of the facade. In the Centre Pompidou, instead, the facade are designed by all those features that usually are hidden in a building. All what was masked and hidden in the building became instead the facade of the building. For this reason, I and obviously I, when uh, when you visit a building, when you like a building. You, there is something that you like more and uh, what you prefer. For this reason, I love the facade of the Centre Pompidou, which is not the major one, the most important one. The big facade with the red staircase in front of the, which is now the Pompidou Square. But I like the back facade, which is designed exactly by all what usually is not interesting for the architect and is hidden inside of the stomach of the building. All of the ductwork and the... Yeah. yeah. This is... I think that to design a facade with these tools uh, is was a really a great achievement of... Of all the guys, of all the architects who worked for, for the Saint Pompidou. 
Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Francesco, and for talking about the book and the history of the Centre Pompidou. It's very interesting. The book, again, is Centre Pompidou, Renzo Piano, Richard Rogers, and the Making of a Modern Monument by Francesco Delco. It's available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.